Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's podcast episode on gestational diabetes and pregnancy is brought to you by my friends at Cybex. Cybex has received more than 450 awards for design, safety, and innovation for their car seats and strollers. Our gorgeous little girl Mia is safe and sound in her Cybex Cloud Q car capsule and rose gold preem that we were kindly gifted. You can check out the stylish Cybex range at cybex-online.com. Today's special guest is dietitian Leslie Flannery. Leslie is a registered dietitian and certified lactation counselor who specializes in gestational diabetes nutrition coaching. She's been working with pregnant mums for the past eight years and loves helping women advocate for themselves and their babies. Leslie has two young boys herself and you can find her on Instagram, gestational.diabetes.nutrition. In today's episode, Leslie and I discuss what gestational diabetes is and who is most at risk. We chat about the stigma attached to gestational diabetes, how we get diagnosed with it, and what happens if we don't control it properly. We talk about medications, carbohydrates, nutrition tips, and how mums can lower their blood sugar levels. I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode, so let's dive right in. Welcome to the podcast today, Leslie. I'm really excited to have you on to share all of your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And can you let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and how you got into this area, which is really specific, but so, so needed um, around pregnancy, nutrition and gestational diabetes? Yeah, sure. So I have been working specifically in the pregnancy sphere for about eight years. Um, Here in the United States, I worked in a public health um, department called WIC. It's Women, Infant, and Children's. So, in children. So, we would see a lot of pregnant women, and I loved counseling mamas to be. Um, And I worked there for about five years, and then an opportunity came up to work in a doctor's office, specifically with gestational diabetic moms. And I just jumped at that because um, it was really helping, like you said, work more specifically in pregnancy and dealing with blood sugar issues. And I felt like it was a real issue that these pregnant women needed solved. So that's how I got started. And then I left um, my doctor's office job about eight months ago and just started my own private practice because I felt like women even weren't getting enough support in the doctor's office. So I'm loving where I'm at now, really getting to follow these women through their pregnancy. Wonderful. So it's been a busy year for you, I imagine. Yes, super busy. Well, let's start with, I guess, the basics for our listeners at home. What exactly is gestational diabetes? Because I'm sure that a lot of our listeners at home have heard of, um, you know, diabetes and, and the sort of couple of types like type one and type two, but how does that differ to gestational diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say it is somewhat similar to type 2 diabetes, but it's its own animal, I always say. It is specifically diabetes in pregnancy. So just like what it sounds, gestational would be pregnancy, diabetes, you know, having blood sugar issues, elevated blood sugars in pregnancy. Um, So the placenta sends off specific hormones that naturally 
increase our blood sugars a little bit. They make us more insulin resistant. And some women can overcompensate for that and some women just can't. And so that's kind of what gestational diabetes is in a nutshell. Once you deliver the baby, the blood sugar issues essentially, fingers crossed, go away in true gestational diabetes. And then is there anybody who's, I guess, more at risk of gestational diabetes than somebody else? Would you say there are any sort of risk factors throughout pregnancy or does it really, those risk factors, are they sort of a pre-pregnancy thing? Yeah, I will tell you, I, I do see women, I would say somewhat often that don't have any risk factors. And I think it really throws those women for a loop and when they know, like, I didn't have any of these pre-existing risk factors, but they can still develop it just because the placenta does make you a little bit more um, insulin resistant, but there are risk factors. So anyone over the age of 25, which sounds crazy to me because I'm 39 and I'm like, I am not too old, but yeah, anyone over the age of 25, anyone that has a family history of diabetes, So if mom, dad have type 2 diabetes, if your sister has type 2 diabetes, you're more likely um, just genetically maybe to have slower working insulin. If you've had a previous pregnancy with gestational diabetes, there's a fairly high likelihood that you will have it again. Um, If you have PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome can make you insulin resistant. Higher BMI can be a risk factor. And then some um, ethnic backgrounds. So African-Americans, Hispanic, Asian, Pacific Islanders have more of a risk to develop gestational diabetes. And then I wanted to just quickly ask you about, I guess, that sort of stigma attached to gestational diabetes, because I think a lot of people, I guess, appreciate that type 2 diabetes is more of what we might term a lifestyle disease, or a lot of people think, oh, you you know, you've got type 2 diabetes because you're overweight, but that's simply not the case with gestational diabetes or even type 2 diabetes, I must say. And you did a wonderful post I saw on your Instagram, um, and it said, let's normalize gestational diabetes in pregnancy, just like we normalize morning sickness in pregnancy, because both are caused by hormones. And I really love this because I just remember thinking when I went and I did my um, uh, glucose test at about 28 weeks pregnant, I just remember thinking how fearful I was and thinking, oh my goodness, like imagine if I imagine if I got gestational diabetes, what am I going to do? Like I'm a dietitian, I've tried to do all the right things. And I guess that even I felt that stigma attached to it as well. So why do, I guess, some people get gestational diabetes despite doing all the right things or despite having, as you said, like no risk factors. Why does it happen to some? And then other people, you look at you like they're not eating well. They've gained a ton of weight. They're like, they're not doing anything quote unquote right, yet they just cruise by and they don't get it at all. Right. So why why do some people get it and some people don't? What, what's happening there? Yeah. And I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning that post because it was somewhat controversial. I got some kickback on that, which um, I would say for the most part, I don't. But I think um, people didn't want me to say that we should just accept gestational diabetes and that we shouldn't normalize it, which goes to show how much of a stigma there still really is out there. Um, And you're right. Even with type 2 diabetes, there are thin people that come up with type 2 diabetes that get diagnosed with it. You know, there are... um, women that I see every day that don't have any of these risk factors that I mentioned that are getting diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And I think, you know, your question, you know, how can someone who is, seems like by all accounts would probably get gestational diabetes and then they don't, that could be genetics. 
you know, and that also could be hormones. So all of our pregnancy hormones for each person, they're a little bit different. So someone might just have really strong hormones slowing your insulin down, um, that causes you to fail that glucose tolerance test and have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. So, you know, the risk factors, they are there. And if you have them, you are more likely to to get gestational diabetes, but there are women all the time that don't really have anything going on to make me think that they would have gestational diabetes, but they do get diagnosed. So sometimes it's not what we did or didn't do. Sometimes it's simply, it is what it is. You know, we've got these hormonal things happening within our body. We can't really control a lot of this. Um, And so it's just something that we need to just, I guess, feel a little bit more empowered about in terms of managing this really important condition, isn't it? Yes. And, And I think there are so many women that feel like their body has done them wrong or they feel very just let down and like, gosh, you know, like you're saying, and I probably would feel the same way being a dietitian. We know a lot about food, but that doesn't mean that we still couldn't develop it. Um, and, and even like with medication and, and I think we'll talk, you know, about that, but I read a great quote in an article, um, I can't think of the publication now, but it was from UK somewhere in the UK. And it said that, you know, what if we were ill, if we had some virus or bacterial um, infection and we needed a medication to get over this illness? We wouldn't think we're a failure. So looking at just, I kind of look at gestational diabetes in that same way. Um, A lot of times when women get upset that they need insulin, it's like, well, your body just needs extra help. It doesn't mean that you have done anything wrong. And really just the diagnosis with gestational diabetes is the same. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. It's just that you can't control the hormones, you know, in your body. I wish we could, but we can't. hundred percent. And if we could, if women could control their own hormones, I think we'd be a lot better off long-term, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. All right. So we've mentioned a few times um, the GTT, the glucose tolerance test. Can you let our listeners know a little bit about, I guess, in terms of like the diagnosis around gestational diabetes or how that happens? Do you have to go and get, um, you know, drink that horrible um, sweet tasting liquid or is there another way? So the glucose tolerance test is usually done between 24 and 28 weeks. And here in the States, we do a one hour test. If you fail the one hour test, you take a three hour test. Um, And then if you are confirmed to have gestational diabetes, you will most likely get a home monitoring glucose machine, a meter to test your blood sugars four times a day. Oh, interesting. So in Australia, I'm, I'm actually, I must be honest, I'm not sure. I didn't ask too many questions. Um, my GP just recommended it, I think being my first pregnancy um, and my mum's Malaysian. So I've sort of got that, um, you know, Asian background. He sort of said, look, we'll just get it done and we'll see what happens. But the only option he sort of gave me was the three hour test. So, um, you know, in Australia, we're still pretty, um, we've still got masks and that sort of thing when we're going out. So I had to sit in the pathology clinic for three hours. I think from memory, the bottle said it was about 80 grams of sugar. So yeah, I was drinking that and the nurse said, you know, no water, you've got to get this down in the next five minutes. And um, she was, she was lovely. She was so empathetic. She's like, I know it's horrible. Just keep drinking, keep drinking. And then to put your mask back on and have to sit there for the next three hours without any fresh air. I was like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. So I love that you guys start with the one hour, not the three hour. (laughs) So yes, you can also here in the States, you are able most physicians will let you decline the glucose tolerance test mm-hmm. and then just track your blood sugars for 2 weeks okay and after 2 weeks they'll take a look at your blood sugar number so it would be checking four times a day as if you were diagnosed you turn in that blood sugar log um, and then if you have 
whatever their criteria is, if you are over, you know, this, the threshold, they will diagnose you off of that. Okay. So there's a way that you can do it yourself without having to go and drink the exorbitant amounts of sugar at the one time. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, personally, I hate that test. (laughs) So I think if I had to do that again, I would opt for just tracking my blood sugars because I think it, it, like you said, with a mask on and no water, it's so much sugar. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's not my favorite. And there's so much going on already. You're just like, oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and for the ladies, um, I guess in America who might be tracking it themselves, is it um, like a pinprick? Is that how you would do it? Yes. The four times a day checking your sugars? Yeah. It, it's not super comfortable. <laughs> I've, I have clients who take insulin and they say that that is more comfortable to administer their insulin shots than it is to actually check their blood sugar. It's not super fun. Interesting. Yeah. I've got um, one or two clients at the moment and they're just big, um, they just hate needles and like like true phobias. Like they have to almost get put under just to get something simple like uh, like an iron test or something like that. So I imagine that for a lot of people, depending on if you like needles or not, one, uh, one option to get the diagnosis or to see if you're okay might actually be a lot more appealing than another. <laughs> yeah, that is very true. Yeah. All right. So um, say we're a pregnant mama, we've done the test, um, you know, we've got the results back um, and it came back that we had, you know, elevated sugar levels. What is, I guess, the risks or the ramifications if we didn't control that properly? Like say the doctor came and he said, oh, you know, your, your sugars are slightly elevated. I'm not liking the look of that. We, we should do something. And you kind of just went in your head, you know what? Like, I'm fine. I'll just keep going. What are the risks with gestational diabetes if we don't properly control our blood sugar levels? Yeah, I think the most common is macrosomia, which is a larger baby. So a big baby for gestational age. A lot of times clients will tell me they're measuring two or three weeks after ahead of what their gestation truly is. And and the real worry with macrosomia, um, not necessarily, you know, women are able to deliver bigger babies because I think genetics play a role into what size your baby is going to come out as well, but really with the shoulders. So it's shoulder dyscosia. Um, If your blood sugars stay elevated, they can start to affect baby and baby's growth and the shoulders being too big can then cause issues at delivery for mom Mm. um, and babies getting stuck and things like that. So they worry about that, but they also worry um, too about hypoglycemia after delivery for the baby. So the baby's blood sugars can go too low Mm -hmm. because they are used to getting all of that blood sugar from mom. They're getting all their nutrients from mom in the womb. And sometimes they can start to produce more insulin themselves to keep up with all of that blood sugar mom is giving. Mm -hmm. And then they have all of this insulin. And then when they're delivered, they go low. So -hmm. that can be a worry as well. Um, You know, worst case scenarios, there can be breathing issues and there can be stillbirth. Um, I personally have not had any clients have that issue, but of course that's very scary. So definitely something that I guess we need to take seriously and do all that we can to, um, as best as we can, control our blood sugar levels. Yes, for sure. And you mentioned the word insulin um, a little bit, which I'm sure a few people um, listening at home have definitely heard, but I'm not sure if everybody, I guess, understands what insulin is or what it does. So can you give our listeners a little rundown on, I guess, how insulin works in the body um, and why that might be something that's helpful for um, our mums with gestational diabetes? Yeah. So our bodies naturally make insulin and and that is what is removing your blood sugar from your bloodstream. So 
I eat a meal with carbohydrate, protein, fat, it's all really well balanced. It's natural for your blood sugar to elevate a little bit. Your insulin that is produced by your pancreas should come along and remove the blood sugar from your bloodstream and put it into your cells. And that's kind of how it's supposed to work. But in pregnancy, the insulin isn't doing its job as quickly. So some women require extra insulin that you would administer via a shot. And then that insulin is used to help bring your blood sugar down quicker. And other recommendations for most women, I know, I remember a few years ago, the guidelines got changed. um, And I think we're pretty strict in terms of um, insulin as sort of like a first sort of recommendation. um, If you do fail that sort of blood glucose test, is that similar in America where sort of the first protocol is generally insulin or do they let a lot of mums just go by for a few weeks and track it and try to do some sort of dietary intervention or are they pretty quickly in terms of getting mums straight onto insulin? You know, it, I see women from all over the United States, all over this country. And I have to be honest with you, each provider, each doctor operates a little differently. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know how it is in Australia, but even here in the United States with our goal blood sugar numbers. So say you're diagnosed and now we're having you check your blood sugar four times a day. Some doctors want your fasting blood sugar first thing in the morning to be under 90 and some want it under 95. Some want your post-meal numbers under 120, someone in under 140. They give you different times to check. So that's my one kind of issue with the way things are done currently here is that it's not uniform for everyone. Um, and so a lot of physicians will jump straight to insulin because it doesn't cross the placenta. It doesn't go to the baby at all, whereas some oral medications do. But I have clients who tell me their physicians, they want to first try oral medications. And some physicians are very liberal and they will let you really just keep trying for a little bit longer, even with slightly elevated blood sugars. So it kind of runs the gamut. Mm. Everyone's a little different. And you mentioned checking your sugars up to four times a day. That's a lot because, you know, a lot of women are still working right up to sort of the end of their pregnancy. Some women have, you know, young kids at home as well. We're trying to juggle work, family life um, and pregnancy in general, which is hard enough. And then you've got to check your sugars four times a day on top of that. That's a lot. Is it the only way to check them? Is it like through a pinprick? Is is there any other way to check them? So there is something called a continuous glucose monitor. And that is um, a device that goes on usually the back of your arm and it measures your interstitial fluid and measures your blood sugar that way. Here in the United States, um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, who would okay that has not okayed it in pregnancy yet Mm. because the interstitial fluid it's measuring is diluted in pregnancy. So they're not accurate during pregnancy, okay. which is a bummer because I, I do like the idea yeah. of the continuous glucose monitor. You just kind of, you it's really cool. You run your smartphone by the monitor itself and it gives you your blood sugar reading. So easy. So how cool would that be? Yes. You don't have to check. Yes. I know. I hope the technology comes about someday. 
Um, because yeah, that's like 28 times checking a week, which is nuts to me. It's a lot of blood sugars. It is a lot, isn't it? And I can imagine that, I mean, I, you know, I'm quite a type A perfectionist personality and I could imagine that that would stress me out a lot, particularly if a few of those readings were higher than they should be or lower than they should be. So, you know, do every one of those readings have to be perfect out of those 28 times that you're checking each week? How, how much room or movement do we have between those readings? Yeah. You know, again, that kind of goes back to your physician and how conservative they want your blood sugars to be and how liberal they are with that. My personal opinion would be that if I'm, and I look at food logs for my clients every week and they show me what they're eating and they show me their blood sugar numbers. And if they've got even, you know, that's, gosh, it's close to 20 post-meal numbers that they're checking, even if like four of them are slightly elevated, like just right above where they should be. To me, I don't feel like I'm worried about that because it's really trends that research has shown that if your blood sugars are trending high all of the time, that's when it really starts to impact baby. Mm -hmm. So if you go out to eat and you go to a restaurant, you try to do everything balanced, but maybe your number is just slightly higher, I would not panic. Mm -hmm. Because one high number here or there in the grand scheme of things is probably not not hurting baby at all. Definitely. Because as you mentioned, like 28 times a week is a lot. I still can't get over that number. It's it's a lot of times. It's it's really something that's, um, yeah, I'm sure could be quite overwhelming for a lot of ladies. It really is. It takes up a lot of mental headspace. It's, I mean, it's like you're constantly thinking about it, you know, checking four times a day and thinking about what you're eating. And and so I like to put it in perspective sometimes for them. It's like, when you think about it, try not to get so upset about this one number over here, because that's one number out of 28 numbers. So that's a perfect week if you have one high number out of 28 other numbers, you know, that are good. Yeah, you're doing pretty damn well. (laughs) Yes, I think so. I'm quickly interrupting our podcast to bring you a healthy break from today's episode sponsor, Cybex. Cybex offers car seats, baby carriers, kids furniture, and strollers that are not only safe, but perfectly adapt to urban lifestyles. Always challenging the status quo, Cybex has become not just a leader in child safety, but is seen as an innovative lifestyle and fashion brand. With its fresh approach, Cybex designs products for parents integrating and balancing safety, design, and function. Our gorgeous little girl Mia is safe and sound in her Cybex Cloud Q car capsule and rose gold preamp that we were kindly gifted. You can check out the stylish Cybex range at cybex-online.com. Now let's jump back into our podcast episode with Leslie. And then I guess thinking about nutrition, because I'm sure that, you know, two dietitians chatting about gestational diabetes, everyone's like, get into the nutrition part of it. <laughs> so one of my pet hates, and I'm sure it's yours as well, is when I guess doctors or OBs give us these like blanket nutrition recommendations to, you know, really vulnerable mums. I could imagine that if that was me sitting in the doctor's clinic and they were like, you know, your sugars have come back high, you've got gestational diabetes, I would feel really vulnerable. And I would basically do exactly what that doctor was telling me. And I think a lot of of what we hear is that mums are saying, you know, I've had to cut out all carbohydrates or I've had to go keto to manage my gestational diabetes. 
is that true? Do we need to cut out all carbohydrates to, to manage this condition? Or is there a way that we can safely and happily include some carbohydrates in our diet? Yes. Thank you so much for asking this because I hear it all day, every day. Um, and I certainly don't think it's a good recommendation for pregnant women to start cutting out carbohydrates because you're also probably cutting out fiber and folate and calcium and magnesium and zinc and like all of these other wonderful nutrients that you need to truly grow a healthy baby. Um, you are growing a brain in there and brains need carbohydrates to function on. So I, I don't think keto is the answer for pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, in my experience, most women come to me already on a low carb diet. I think a lot of women just in general with kind of like diet culture are already afraid of carbohydrates. So then when your doctor says, go low carb, I mean, you may already be low carb. So then that's really scary. And women come to me essentially eating no car carbohydrate at all. Mm. Um, and what I notice is oftentimes they are still struggling with high blood sugars. So there can be something called like it's, it's called gluconeogenesis and it, but it, what it is, it's like a rebound high blood sugar. So if, <laughs> if you're not getting any carbohydrate throughout the day, your liver will do you a favor, favor in quotes, right? Because it will actually start to take your fat and your protein stores and make it and turn it into glucose and dump it back out for you because you need energy. So really I think it's counterproductive to go super low carb keto during pregnancy for blood sugar issues. But also, as you mentioned, one of the wonderful nutrients that mamas need a lot of is fiber because a lot of times we have some difficulty going to the bathroom. So exactly. our fiber is really easily taken in through wonderful, you know, the right types of carbohydrate in our diet, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yes. And, you know, I will say it's not to be like, oh, we'll just go ahead and eat all the big carbohydrates and just do whatever you want with them. There is some balance there that has to happen in portion sizing and things like that for sure. But um, taking it all away is not great and going all in probably won't work. So it's kind of a meet in the middle with balance. Absolutely. We need balance. So it's the type of carbohydrate that matters and the portion that's obviously going to be different for everybody because we're all a little bit different. I always say, you know, I'm nearly six foot one. I'm very different to if there was a mama out there with gestational diabetes who's four foot 11, like we're going to have very different requirements. So in terms of the types of carbohydrates, obviously we're not sitting here recommending you just munch on bags of lollies or four slices of toast for breakfast. What are some, I guess, quality carbohydrates that are, you know, the best for our mamas with um, gestational diabetes? Yeah. Some of my favorites are things like beans and lentils because they also have protein and fiber which we love fiber, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I really, I really like berries, berries, you know, one cup of berries is 15 grams of carbohydrate. It's lower on the glycemic index. It's got fiber and so many antioxidants, um, but they're lower, you know, each little berry is lower in sugar. So you can have a full cup of them for one serving of carbs. So I love berries. And actually my favorite snack of all is popcorn. <laughs> Because popcorn has a decent amount of fiber actually in it. I do love popcorn. I'm a sucker for popcorn, I must admit. <laughs> so 
Me too. So what are uh, what are some tips for our mums at home to help them lower their blood sugar levels in pregnancy? Um, if we're thinking from a, I guess, a nutrition perspective. Um, so we mentioned sort of carbohydrates are important, but the type and the amount matters. What are some other tips that our, our ladies can do at home that will help them to achieve that, I guess, uh, more balanced blood sugar levels throughout the day? Yeah. So I think, you know, like you said, the balance and portion is super important. Making sure you have fiber on your plate, you have good protein and some healthy fat is important. But I also always stress to my clients that it's not all about food. So we want to make sure that we're maintaining healthy stress levels. You know, if you're if you're very stressed out at work, I highly recommend on finding some tools to help you deal with stress. Sleep can affect our blood sugars. Hydration can affect our blood sugars. Um, You know, sometimes there's some supplements. If you're low in vitamin D, uh, magnesium has been shown to help with blood sugars. So I would say, you know, nutrition, very, very important for blood sugar control, but it's a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So I like to look at my clients, at least as a whole person, and kind of figure out where we can um, get better balance in our lives to help with blood sugars. So say if you had everything nailed from a nutrition perspective, you're like, yep, eating well, everything's ticked off, but you were super stressed from your job and you just weren't getting enough sleep because maybe you had a toddler running around. Are those two things enough? Uh, or can they elevate your blood sugars enough despite having really good nutrition um, as well? Like is, is the lifestyle implications as important as nutrition, if that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can think of several past clients that I've had off the top of my head who one had a very stressful job and nutrition was perfect, spot on, but her numbers were still high. And as soon as she went on maternity leave, her fasting blood sugar specifically came way down. So I'm like, that is just goes to show you how much stress really can impact numbers. Um, So yeah, I I have clients all the time that get the food pairings exactly the way I would recommend them. I look at their food log. I'm like, this is a picture of perfection, Um, but maybe just some other things we're working on. It's really hard to get enough water through the day. They're super stressed. Or, you know, there's one I'm thinking of who, does so well, but I think it's just hormonal. Like she does well with everything. And just that fasting number is a little bit high. And so there's hormone surges in pregnancy too, that we have to keep in mind specifically between 32 and 36 weeks, it gets really hard. There's an extra push of hormones. Um, So I just keep reminding them again, to have grace with yourself and you're doing a good job. You're doing everything that you can right? Sometimes there are things we can't control. Exactly. And I think that's really important to to recognize, especially with something like gestational diabetes, because again, that stigma and that pressure where, you know, some people do all of the right things and their body just doesn't want to respond the way that we want it to respond, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's really a slippery slope of letting that really stress you out because then stress can increase blood sugar. So I, I try to say it a lot. So they realize like, okay, this is not my fault. Because just getting worked up about it doesn't help. It's kind of like a vicious cycle, right? Of like seeing those high numbers and then getting stressed. And you mentioned food pairings, um, which I find really interesting. Um, And I sort of um, am thinking that gestational diabetes from a nutrition perspective is just sort of good quality nutrition. It's sort of what we would advocate for the standard standard person anyway. What do you think of when you think of food pairings? So we said that carbohydrates are definitely okay, but it's sort of the right type. So if someone had a a meal with um, beans or legumes in it, as you mentioned, what else would we pair in that meal to? 
to create some good blood sugar levels? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you're just eating carbohydrate by itself, say you just had like some beans for a snack and and no protein or fat, it's going to get digested probably a little bit quicker. So adding the fat is really going to help slow down digestion. Say avocado would be a great thing to pair with beans and some chicken breast. Mm -hmm. I think that would make a really nice meal together. Maybe you throw a little bit of corn in there. Um, but really making sure that you have the protein, fat, and fiber because those three things help to slow down digestion. And then I think um, – I'm not sure about Americans, but I know a lot of Aussies, like we really like our carbohydrates, particularly for breakfast time. You know, a lot of our breakfast-based things, you know, um, toast, cereal, bowls of porridge, smoothies, they're quite heavily carbohydrate-based. So if we take your, I guess, food pairings and think of a carb, a protein, um, a fat, and a fiber, if we – thought about say toast for example um i'm sort of thinking you know maybe some protein on that would be some cottage cheese maybe a pair it with a bit of fat would be some avocado and maybe a little bit of fiber we could add some cucumber or tomatoes or some um rocket or i think you guys call it arugula yeah. <laughs> um would that sort of be what you would call like a more balanced breakfast than just putting some jam on toast or just putting some Vegemite on toast and running out the door. Yes, that is a perfect breakfast. That gets a gold stamp of approval. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that breakfast. Cottage cheese on toast for me has always been a go-to because it's so filling. Um, And then I try to get a little bit of extra added vegetables on in the morning as well. (laughs) Yes, it's so good. And I think at least here, I don't, in America, I think fiber is one of those foods that we don't talk about enough and that probably most Americans are not getting enough. And then in pregnancy, you need more, as you mentioned. Um, It's really hard to think of ways to incorporate it, but I love like an arugula or lettuce or veggies with breakfast. I think that's super important. And just quickly, I just wanted to ask you in terms of with gestational diabetes, you sort of mentioned at the very beginning, it tends to, in most people, go away after the birth of the baby. So what happens if it doesn't go away or what's sort of the testing protocol? What happens after we have bub. So, you know, we're in this magical little moment. We've got bub, we're in the hospital, everyone's, um, you know, happy and healthy. What happens from a gestational diabetes perspective then? Is there further testing? Is there monitoring that you have to do for the next, I don't know, weeks, months, years? How does that work? Yeah, here in the United States, and again, I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but as soon as you deliver that baby, They will test baby's blood sugars a couple times in the hospital to make sure baby's okay and not going too low with their blood sugars like we mentioned before, but most women don't get even, their blood sugars don't even get checked after delivery, which is a little wild to me, Um, but they assume that once you deliver that placenta that it it is resolved. you know, maybe some doctors will instruct their patients to continue checking. Most do not. And then as far as protocol to follow up afterwards, we generally have women test or do another glucose tolerance test at six weeks postpartum. Um, You can also opt to do an A1C blood draw instead which is, you know, just a blood draw. If you hate that yucky drink, which I do, (laughs) um, you can have your A1C drawn and the A1C is an average of your blood sugars for three months. Mm -hmm. So if anyone wanted to do that instead of the glucose tolerance test, I would just recommend to wait three months postpartum and, and not do that at six weeks because 
six weeks will go back into your pregnancy blood sugar numbers and we don't want to measure those. We want to know what it's like after delivery. Definitely. And then say again, as a hypothetical, you had either of those done and your sugars were still elevated and high. So we mentioned that gestational diabetes is diabetes of pregnancy. What would then happen if the diabetes continued? Would that, that then, I guess, become type 2 diabetes? Is there is there another term for it? Yeah, depending on what your numbers came back at or what your A1C came back at, you may be diagnosed with prediabetes or you may be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And really, that's what that test is designed to do. So they want to make sure they're not missing type 2 diabetes. Because every, all of the women here are being screened for gestational, but unless, you, unless your doctor has any indication before pregnancy that you had diabetes, you know, we might not know that you were type 2 diabe- diabetic. You get pregnant, we do the screening, oh, there's a blood sugar issue, so we're going to call that gestational diabetes. But if you deliver the baby and your numbers are still elevated, even six weeks postpartum, three months postpartum, it may have just been type 2 diabetes underlying. So yeah, definitely want to follow up. I highly recommend to follow up postpartum. Interesting. To be honest, I never really thought of that. So a lot of a lot of these women may have actually been diabetic before they found out they were pregnant and just not even realized. And it's almost like a blessing that the pregnancy has kind of picked this up. Yeah. Yeah. It very well could be. I have seen women that that has happened too. Interesting. I never thought about that. All right. Well, let's let's end this podcast on a positive for all our listeners. And I can't think of anything more positive than food because I love food. I love nutrition. So (laughs) what are your five favorite meals or snacks that our pregnant mamas can happily include um, to help them manage their blood sugar levels? It's just that little bit easier. Yeah. So I think I really like, like I said, I liked beans. So I think taco meal If you had like a hard shell taco with some beans and lettuce and avocado in there, that's one of my favorites. I also really love lentil pasta. Do you all have that in Australia? Yes, we do. I love it as well. I love it from a nutrition standpoint because of the protein and the fiber. So throw some marinara sauce on there with some ground beef or ground turkey, add a side salad. I think that's a wonderful meal. Um, soup, I think, you know, it's getting cold here in the United States anyway. And so a cup of soup with a salad and maybe half of a sandwich would be a great meal. Um, you know, thinking outside the box, I really love sweet potatoes. So you could even do half of a sweet potato with a meat of your choice, whatever that might be. Um, throw, always throw some green veggies in there. (laughs) I like broccoli, salad, um, cucumber, asparagus, and then you could even do maybe like a third cup of quinoa. I like quinoa because it has a lot of protein and fiber in it as well. So those were kind of my, my meal go-tos. Snacks, I told you, my number one snack I will recommend to anybody who asks is popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) I would pair it with either nuts or cheese. Um, Some ladies I'm working with have been loving popcorn with like a little handful of nuts and a square of dark chocolate. So good. Ooh, love it. Love it. I know. Um, I think hummus is a great snack with you can do raw veggies and then you could either do some um, wheat pita chips or pretzel fins with that. I think Greek yogurt is also a wonderful snack because it's high protein. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on the brand, you may also need to count that as a carbohydrate. So I would probably just look at your nutrition label. 
I like adding pumpkin seeds or nuts or peanut butter. I know it might sound odd to yogurt. <laughs> I think that's yummy. Um, and I also really like any type of fruit with cottage cheese or, again, nut butter, apple and nuts or apple and nut butter is really delicious. One of my favorites as well. So what you're really looking, as you said, that food pairing, you're pairing some good quality carbohydrates with either some fat or some protein um, and a little bit of fiber as well. And that really does help to slow down that digestion of food and help to stabilize those blood sugars um, in the long term, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. If someone just eats an apple by itself, I am here to tell you it probably will increase your blood sugars, you know, one or two hours later quickly. But if you throw some peanut butter or a handful of cashews in with that, your blood sugars are going to be much more stabilized. Apple and cheese slices is my favorite. I kind of cut a few chunks of cheddar cheese off, slice my apple up and have them together. Favorite stack. <laughs> so good. So good. <laughs> Wonderful. And just last little question for you, Leslie, breakfast option. What is your favorite breakfast option? Because as I said, I think a lot of women get quite, I guess, fearful at breakfast because most breakfast options that are quick and easy are quite heavily, um, you know, are quite heavy in carbohydrates. So what are your go-to one or two breakfast options for your ladies? Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that morning can be a little bit more of a struggle for those who are dealing with gestational diabetes because the placenta sends off all of those hormones that are causing some of this issue in the morning. Mm. So typically they see their fastings a little bit higher, but breakfast can sometimes be an issue. So you may have to do a little less carbohydrate at breakfast than you are doing at lunch or dinner. Um, I like your meal, your breakfast idea. I'm totally sharing that with everyone, <laughs> but I personally do love a piece of toast with cottage cheese. Oh, it's so good. Um, you can, I, I love throwing some arugula on there, or, you know, you could even do some cucumber cut up. I like overnight oats, but you just have to be a little bit careful of the portion size. So you want to keep it to a half a cup cooked. Um, and with almond milk, you have to just be a little bit careful of like dairy milk and yogurt in the morning because they're digested a little quicker. Mm -hmm. So my go-tos are usually like eggs and toast or a protein frozen waffle with some peanut butter. Um, you know, it can, it, it's just a little bit tougher at breakfast time because some things get digested a little bit quicker. Yeah. And there's a whole range of, um, I guess, lower carbohydrate wraps um, that are sort of available in the market in Australia. So they're not no carb, but they're definitely lower carbs. So a lot of them have sort of between five to 15 grams of carbohydrate, which is actually probably a, a great choice for someone. If they're looking for a quick and easy breakfast option, they can put a bit of, of scrambled or a boiled egg in there, or they could put a few, um, you know, spoons of cottage cheese or even just a bit of cheese and salad in there. I guess so it's not a traditional breakfast option, but it might be a better option than having sort of just like two slices of toast with just a bit of spread on there or something like that. And a lot of these lower carbohydrate wraps are quite um, boosted up with fiber as well, which I think is, is really great from a, from a, you know, obviously fiber perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a great idea. You could do, yeah, like something like a um, Tex-Mex like taco with a little beans and eggs and cheese. I think that would be a great breakfast. Wonderful. Lovely. All right. Well, that's given me lots of food for thought and it being morning here, I think I need to go off and have my <laughs> breakfast now because I'm getting quite hungry thinking about all these suggestions. But Leslie, yes. can you let our listeners know um, where they can find you, where they can follow you on social media um, and a little bit more about your coaching service? As you mentioned, you work with a lot of ladies uh, or you only work with your ladies with gestational diabetes. How can our listeners um, reach out to you or work with you if they're, if they're struggling with their nutrition at home? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at gestational diabetes nutrition 
And what I do in my coaching program, I try to make it a very high level program because I think a lot of times women need that support during this time. So I, I review food logs every single week to give personalized feedback and tips and suggestions. Um, we do weekly Zoom calls for face-to-face support. And then I also provide meal plans, snack ideas, recipes, um, and we just have a really nice community um, and a private Facebook space. And so it's just been really wonderful. The women love it. They love having each other to talk to so they know they're not alone. It just goes back to that kind of community aspect. Um, And you can find the link for my application on Instagram. Wonderful. And do you have a website with that or is it all um, the application and asking you questions and working with you is just through your Instagram? Yep. It would be um, the link that's listed in my bio. Wonderful. Okay. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today, Leslie. Um, you've provided our listeners with so much knowledge, so we can't thank you enough. Yes, it has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.